Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody and welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, I am excited to be interviewing Kate Mann about her new book entitled "How Male Privilege Hurts Women," which was published by Penguin Random House in August of 2021. Dr. Mann is an associate professor of philosophy at Cornell University, where she has taught since 2013. She did her graduate work at MIT and was a junior fellow in the Harvard Society of Fellows. She has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and the Times Literary Supplement, and is also the author of Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. She was recently named one of the world's top 10 thinkers by Prospect Magazine. The book we'll be discussing today is an urgent exploration of men's entitlement and how it serves to police and punish women. It offers a radical new framework for understanding misogyny and thinking about how privileged men's sense of entitlement is a pervasive social problem with often devastating consequences. Dr. Mann argues that male entitlement can explain a wide array of phenomena, from mansplaining and the undertreatment of women's pain, to mass shootings by incels, and the seemingly intractable notion that women are unelectable. With wit and true intellectual fierceness, Dr. Mann sheds new light on important dimensions of gender and power and offers a vision of a world in which women are just as entitled as men to our collective care and concern. I am thrilled to get to discuss this book with its author today, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Kate Mann, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. Well, I I wonder if we might begin before we dive into the book itself um, and have you speak a little bit about yourself, just where you were born, where you attended graduate school, how you came to be at Cornell, if maybe there's an interesting story there. Uh, Just give us some of your background, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up about an hour northeast of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. Um, So yes, I'm Australian by birth, as might be revealed by my accent. (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, I had a lovely childhood uh, in really the countryside. We had uh, kangaroos roaming around and a couple of wow. ponies and horses and chickens, uh, so a very rural area. Um, and then after high school, uh, where um, I suppose I should say that part of my interest in misogyny came from the fact that I attended an all-boys high school as one of the first three girls the year the school integrated. Um, that was for my final two years of high school, so that was a, an interesting experience, to uh, say the least. Um, but after that, I went to um, Melbourne University as an undergrad and studied philosophy and computer science. 
And I then went on to grad school at MIT in philosophy, working with Sally Hasliner and Ray Langton, Richard Holton, Shalia Markovitz. Um, and yeah, I uh, was just lucky enough um, to be offered the job at Cornell um, in my final year of grad school. And it was a wonderful department, wonderful area to live in. Uh, I wanted to kind of stay true to my roots and live somewhere that had a countryside. Um, so it was a wonderful place to get to live for the last now uh, eight years. Um, so yeah. Well, that all, all makes sense. I, I I have to give like a little shout out. Some of this some background I remember hearing because Kate actually did an interview about Down Girl with the New Books Network. So a little bit of a shout out. If you enjoy the interview today, be sure to check out the other episode that, that doesn't have me as the, the host, um, but gives a little bit more on, on this on this background. I always think, too, of schools that, you know, take a long time to be integrated or have a history of being all boys schools because my mom, shout out to, to my, my Navy captain mom, um, taught for a time at Virginia Military Institute, not when it was all boys, but once it had been integrated. And I've talked to her a lot about some of the issues that I know you faced from, from listening to other interviews with you. So oh, wow. I didn't know about the computer science and philosophy, though. This is an interesting little twist. I'm sure we could talk more about it, but maybe I could ask you, since you already started getting us a little bit of the way into why you work on what you do, to say something about or something more about how you became interested in studying misogyny, or maybe how you came to have the interest in feminist philosophy that you do, and then maybe more specifically how you came to write Entitled, the book that we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I suppose in, as an undergrad, I was most interested in logic and the more technical aspects of philosophy. That led to my interest in computer science as sort of a supplement to uh, my logic studies. But it wasn't until grad school, when I was at MIT, that I really became, I, I suppose, um, had a sense of freedom to pursue a long-standing interest in feminist theory and feminist philosophy that had always been something I I was passionately interested in but hadn't necessarily thought of as a viable career path within philosophy before um, the kind of tutelage and mentorship of Sally Haslinger. And I remember her saying um, to a group of us in the lounge one day that sometimes women in philosophy are particularly attracted to studying logic or history because there's a proof or a text. And so it's in some ways harder to be wrong and to just have to defend your views against, against vigorous disagreement because you can actually demonstrably be correct. Mm. And that had a, a big effect on me hearing that because I wondered if I was doing logic for some of the wrong reasons. So I was very interested in it, but I also wondered if I was shutting off a part of myself that was interested in things like ethics and feminist concerns mm -hmm. because I kind of wanted to be right yeah. rather than have to make the argument. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that kind of occasioned a shift for me into ethics and feminist thought. Um, but I wrote my dissertation really in moral philosophy and it wasn't until my first year of teaching at Cornell that I got interested in misogyny as a topic. And I would say what made me um, 
really obsessed with the topic of misogyny was the very last um, few days of my first semester or first year of teaching, I should say, um, the Isla Vista killings happened. So mm -hmm. Elliot Roger struck in Isla Vista, California, and um, he had planned to kill a whole sorority house full of women, um, ended up killing two and wounding one woman, um, one woman in the house that he uh, uh, he had targeted a house and ended up killing students in a nearby sorority. Um, and he also killed, uh, murdered three young men that day. Um, so these horribly tragic events. But what um, interested me as a philosopher was the fact that there was so much denial in the media that this was misogyny. Yes. Even though he had an intent on slaying a whole sorority house full of women, the age and genre of my students. Mm -hmm. I suppose the combination of um, feeling a special responsibility as a new faculty member to female students um, and worrying about things like sexual assault, sexual harassment, and for that matter, misogynistic murder, um, those kind of factors coalesced together with the media denial that this was a misogynistic string of murders um, to make me really want to dig into what misogyny was. And so um, that really led to a, a big change in my interests and I became, um, yeah, I said obsessed and I think that's accurate with writing and thinking about misogyny and really spent the next four years working on the book that became Down Girl, Logic of Misogyny, my first book. Um, and that came out uh, late in 2017. Um, it actually came out the week the Me Too movement was popularized by various celebrities after having, of course, been led by Tarana Burke for over a decade. Mm -hmm. um, and so that meant the book got a lot more press than I had a, been expecting or had anticipated or had hoped for even. Um, and it was really a year later during September of 2018 that the next book had its genesis when the Kavanaugh hearings happened. Mm -hmm. so it was hearing Brett Kavanaugh's entitled, furious, um, and somewhat stroppy fulminating about his mm -hmm. um, being questioned about his the accusations against him by Christine Blasey Ford that he'd been... Um, someone who had sexually assaulted her when the two were both in high school, um, hearing his sense of angry entitlement to not be questioned over those very credible accusations uh, led to me thinking that there was something really worth exploring here to dig into specifically the topic of white male entitlement and the way that it is connected with misogyny. So yeah. that's how the second book came to, came to pass. There's so many things that I, I want to latch on to and, and follow up about. I think one of the things I'm always so struck about with your work, maybe as distinctive within philosophy too, is how interwoven constantly these contemporary events, these things that are in the news media, these things that I think for the most part, at least here in America, we're all very aware of as they're happening. Um, and you're right, you know, absolutely that the media covers them in ways that are sometimes disappointing or sometimes problematic for those of us who think really deeply about um, 
gender and power and uh, maybe think, you know, with a feminist lens as scholars in all these various fields. Um, but it, it just, it packs such a punch to read both of your books now. You know, I read Down Girl and, and now I, I read Entitled to talk to you about it today. And I, I'm just always so struck by the relevance. I mean, it's just, it's right here. It's not some distant problem. It's not some thought experiment. It's, it is absolutely central that the way that you're thinking about entitlement, the way you're thinking about misogyny is in terms of things we can all really latch onto and interpret in various ways. You know, some people watched the Kavanaugh hearings and didn't think that that was a sign of his entitlement or had all sorts of explanations for his behavior and ways of defending him, which you talk about. But I don't know. I, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that and I can sort of plug the book in terms of emphasizing that it does do that so so thoroughly. And it's a very different kind of philosophy that gets produced because you do that. I wondered if I might, since you've been mentioning Down Girl and talking about first book versus second book, and I'm glad you mentioned too that, that you maybe weren't expecting that it would get wrapped up in the Me Too movement and, and how intense that moment was uh, in, in culture, let's say, in politics. But can we talk a little bit about the differences between these books? I kept thinking in advance of getting ready to talk to you, do I talk about this at the beginning or at the end? And I think it's coming up now, so maybe we talk about it now. But uh, having read both, I was struck by how different the tone maybe or the style. I kept thinking, how do I describe the difference between these two books? And it's something you do address in the final chapter, actually. You, you kind of come out and really directly speak to the, the ways that these books are different. But I wonder if I might draw out a little bit, you know, that this book just feels so much lighter. It's, I feel like this, this, it's going to sound not how I want it to, but it's much more readable than Down Girl. Mm -hmm. Down Girl was, it wasn't as intense. And this book entitled is intense too, but in a totally different way. Will you speak a little bit about the differences between these? And, and if the personal needs to come up here, you're welcome to speak to that too, because it's something you're very forthcoming about in the book. Yeah, I so appreciate that question because they are such different flavors of books. Yeah. And part of that, of course, is pragmatic. So Down Girl is a book that I wrote before I was tenured, and so I had to think about it as an academic work as well as um, it was marketed as a crossover book, so it was a book that was meant to be a fairly readable uh, academic work. But um, whereas um, Entitled was written for a trade publisher, Crown, as well as Penguin UK, and so it had to be written with a much more popular and accessible style and reader in mind. And that was partly intentional because while the first book was meant to be part of my tenure file, the second book I wanted to be for all those people who said they were interested in the subject matter of Down Girl but couldn't really get past some of the academic prose. Maybe they could, but they couldn't give it to their teenage daughter who they thought would benefit from reading something along these lines. Um, so I wrote it hoping that philosophers um, and academics would be interested in it too, but that it could reach a wider audience. But that's just the sort of surface level um, stuff about genre. I mean, the deeper part of it is that I was really in a lot of despair when I wrote Down Girl. I was writing it as someone who expected to be silenced. And I was writing it as someone who felt like the very act of writing this book was highly illicit according to its content. That 
being an outspoken feminist as a woman and, and as a woman in a fairly male-dominated profession and discipline, as of course you and many of your listeners will know, um, philosophy is, is highly male-dominated. We're at something like 15% um, of tenured faculty members are women. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think second only to theology in the humanities and is comparable to uh, fields like physics, um, and pure math. So it's, it's a really, it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And I felt like within my framework, what I was doing was liable to be punished, um, that my theory predicted that I would be in for a lot of punishment. And while um, there are those aspects that are true, so when I write for the popular press, you know, when I write for um, a larger media outlet, there is a lot of misogynistic reprisal and punishment. But I actually found that within philosophy, um, I think for various reasons that aren't entirely good, I didn't feel like the reception of the book was particularly punished. And I didn't feel personally subject to huge amounts of misogyny that absolutely do exist within the field. But I, I actually think that I, due to factors that um, have a lot to do with privilege and less to do with some radiant view of the field, I actually skate by uh, pretty much fine due to things like institutional privilege, class privilege, white privilege, and their kind of intersection. Um, so this isn't meant to be a particularly complimentary view of the field, although I think the field is improving in terms of its receptivity to work that is socially aware and politically um, politically, hopefully, savvy. Um, but I think that it's more that I was able to skate by as a class-privileged white cis woman within mm-hmm. philosophy. And the other thing that happened that kind of made me less, um, well, I mean, it's partly just a story about the evolution of depression, but it's also that um, after I wrote Down Girl, I felt like a lot of readers reached out to me and said that the book mattered to them or that they got something out of it, even if they disagreed with large portions of it. I, I think I underestimated during that process the ways in which there can be real feminist community and coalition and solidarity, um, that those things are very real and very important and can even cut across gender lines and be true for men, women, non-binary people, that um, there is a possibility that while it doesn't make me hopeful about the situation whole cloth, um, there is hope for finding your people. And that led me to a very different mental place when I wrote Entitled. Um, I, I felt like even though there was a lot of misogynistic punishment, I wasn't as fearful. I didn't feel as on the precipice of being silenced or... Um, or squashed somehow. And I also felt like um, I had underestimated the power of feminist community that can't stop feminist backlash. In fact, it positively will engender more of it, but it's there as not a panacea, but as a welcome, healthy, salutary antidote. Um, So that kind of awareness of being more in community, I think, stood me in good stead to a book that is still, I hope, and I think 
fairly brutal in what it lays out, um, but I didn't have as monolithic view in writing it of what um, women face. Uh, it's, it's more of a mixed bag than I think I had appreciated. I am just so glad to hear that this feminist community did that or, you know, arose, maybe maybe developed itself around your book to some extent. And that you, I don't know, that you carried the work on. I don't think we academics talk enough about maybe this mixture that you were speaking to originally, the idea that, you know, we, we publish with university presses um, like you did with Down Girl, and and then realize that maybe we we want to write something that's more accessible, something that they publish in say ten thousand copies as opposed to five hundred copies, which is often the case with mm-hmm. with some of the university presses. And that, as you said, we can give to our daughters, or we can we can talk about with our sisters, our mothers who aren't academics. This mixture, I think, you've given such a gift because Down Girl is a read that I, I agree with you that that is that is very readable as an academic work, but has moments where it's it's thick with kind of philosophical discourse that aren't as acceptable. Um, I agree with you too that entitled, how did you put it, is is brutal in what it lays out. And I I mean some chapters, gosh, I think maybe it's what I want to ask you about next. Um, in particular, and I imagine every reader is going to be struck um, differently. I, maybe I should say a little bit. The book is structured um, in terms of 10 overall chapters. And correct me if I'm, I'm not characterizing it correctly, but each one is kind of a different case study of different forms of entitlement. Um, the first chapter is on is called Indelible, on the entitlement of privileged men. The second chapter is Involuntary, on the entitlement to admiration. The third chapter is on the entitlement to sex, another on the entitlement to consent, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I kind of tracked my own emotional state as I read it and found that I was kind of, it was interesting which chapters affected me the most in terms of being like, whoa, that was brutal. I need I need a break. Or, you know, I kind of had to read it more slowly because it, it dredged up for me as a woman, though, I imagine readers who are, are not the, the same gender identity as I am would probably be stuck differently by, by some of the material. But I found for some reason, chapter four, which is called Unwanted on the Entitlement to Consent, was the one where I had to take a break afterwards and, and really think through. You talk a lot about um, unwanted sex within marriages in this chapter. Um, and you discuss, uh, quote, just how difficult it can be for a woman to resist a sense of male sexual entitlement that she or that we have internalized on our partners or on his behalf. And something about that, I mean, it just really got me thinking, but it got me wondering too about you as the author, and you've spoken a little bit about about backlash or about what you were anticipating within your own field in terms of being silenced, being shut down, being ostracized. I mean, I think those of us who work on sexism and misogyny think about this a lot. So I wondered if I might ask sort of how do you cope with living with this material day in and day out? Some of what you cover in your books is just so profoundly disturbing from a human standpoint, not even necessarily from the standpoint of us as women. So can you say something about how hard it is to do this work or make suggestions maybe to graduate students who are listening and want to do this, but but don't have don't quite know what you need to have in your toolbox to do this for years as you have. 
Yes, I'd love to because that was a big part of my journey as an author. I couldn't go back to the place in which I'd written down Girl Mentally. It was Mm. too dark. And so, I mean, a lot of the practices I implemented, again, were kind of the right thing for not necessarily all the right reasons. Uh, When I was writing Entitled, I was pregnant pretty much the whole time. And, um, you know, obviously a lot of the work that went into the book came before that and after it, but the actual writing process was pretty much over those nine months. And so I had to be particularly careful, um, I felt, to kind of guard my mental health for the sake of um, this fetus, um, who's now my my beautiful, delightful uh, 21-month-old daughter. Um, (laughs) So I I felt a very strong sense of moral obligation, which to me is stronger than a sense of prudential obligation to keep my... Uh, mental health strong during that process and what it came down to was a bunch of very pragmatic things um not working for more than two hours a day having uh very strict limits on how many words i would write or how many hours i would do it was either um, a thousand words or two hours whichever came first um and so then spending the rest of my time doing a mixture of the administrative responsibilities um, that came with my job. I was actually on leave for most of the time I was writing it, which was a huge blessing and privilege. So there wasn't a ton of work work that I had to do, but mostly I was engaged in self-soothing. Just things like going for a walk, uh, making a nourishing meal, um, you know, watching bad, good, bad TV. Um, (laughs) Made me feel safe. And also, um, yeah, just pottering around the house. Um, I would say to people who are working in these difficult areas, and my hope is philosophy is opening up to people who are doing this kind of work and who are really engaged in ways that are emotionally draining. I would say really, really look after yourself and find people too who help to look after you. Um, and yeah, I think that, um, being compassionate towards myself was something that came pretty late in life. Uh, I think I wrote this book, I would have been, uh, 36 when I was writing this book. Um, but it was so important and I don't think I could have gotten through writing another book without that process of learning to take care of myself mentally, physically, and all the rest. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad that you that you mentioned those actual specifics. I worried that you would keep it really general. And I feel like now I have permission to watch bad TV. Oh, there's so much bad TV that I'm going to indulge in now as I work on misogyny myself. No, no I, I, we don't talk about it enough as, as academics or, or as kind of scholars, regardless of your field, this idea of learning, as you said, how to be compassionate um, and how to take advantage if you're on leave or something, as you said, is such a, a privileged thing to, to be able to have the space to write in this way. But it doesn't mean, listen up, everybody, it doesn't mean you write 12 or 16 hours a day, especially if from your situation, as Kate was describing, is one where you have to take care of your body and your mental mm-hmm. health. And oh, I'm, I can't thank you enough for, for, for saying what you did. 
I kind oh. of want maybe maybe it's a good moment to talk about the way that the personal appears in this book. Um, the way it too is threaded through, similar to you know talking about Brett Kavanaugh, talking about the Isla Vista murders, and and so on and so forth. I wanted to read. This is a, just a tiny snippet from the last chapter. I I like to do this because I think you have such a beautiful voice, and it is such a readable book as we've been as we've been saying. And I'm hoping maybe reading a little bit of what is actually in this book will entice our listeners even more to get a copy and to read the whole thing. I'll be overlapping a little bit with what you already said, and I do have a follow-up question, so I'm not just going to read it and then leave you hanging, but this is from chapter 10, which is called Undespairing on the Entitlement of Girls. You say, quote, I wrote much of this book while pregnant with my first child, which you already said, and I came to feel that my previous despair had been something of a luxury, a luxury I can now ill afford to indulge. I am still pessimistic about the possibility of making much needed feminist social progress without incurring destructive, toxic backlash. But giving up no longer feels like a viable option. I increasingly feel the need to keep fighting regardless of the outcome. Hope, to me, is a belief that the future will be brighter, which I continue not to set much store in. But the idea of fighting for a better world, and equally importantly, fighting against backsliding, it's not a belief, it's a political commitment that I can get on board with. Oh, I just, I mean, it took my breath away. I have goosebumps a little bit now rereading it. And it makes it, oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for writing it. I mean, it, it's just, the voice is so powerful. It's, but it, but it also is so realistic. I don't know how else to put it. It's like, it's tempered in a way that, that really reveals the kind of thinker you are. But But I think too, the kind of human being you are and what you really went through as you wrote this and, and moved through this despair. It struck me as I was kind of getting notes together for today that I know, I feel like we know the role maybe of belief in philosophy. And I think we know pretty well the role that political commitment has often in certain kinds of philosophy. But I wondered if you might say something about what the place of hope you know, would be in a philosophical system or as someone like you working at very high levels of philosophy. Where, where does hope go amidst belief, amidst po- politics? You know, what, what's its place? Yeah, you know, I'm someone who, I think this is an unpopular stance of mine, but I'm someone who thinks hope sometimes has to be rejected, at least as a monolithic stance. Okay. Um, the idea in my first book that I still that I still kind of stand by for all that my mood is different is that there is this kind of almost genre expectation of women that we should be hopeful. Yes. Almost like something we hold space for others to have this belief in a bright future. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't see the grounds for that. You know, I look at the world in terms of, um, or I look, you know, especially at the moment at contemporary America and its attempts to reckon with 
white supremacy and misogyny and xenophobia and classism and ableism and transphobia and homophobia, all the rest of it. And yes, there is patchy non-linear progress and that is a wonderful thing. I absolutely believe it. Um, so, you know, I have kind of patchy, a patchy sense that things will improve as they will, not inevitably, but because we fight for them. But to be able to say, um, especially as a woman or a man of color or a non-binary person, you know what, I'm not hopeful today or in general. Mm -hmm. And that that is okay, that is justified by the evidence. And yes, I will continue to keep fighting. Um, the philosopher Kate Norlock has a wonderful notion of perpetual struggle um, that she has defended the idea that we can perpetually struggle even without hope um, for a kind of monolithically brighter world. Um, but yeah, that, that defying of expectations to reject the, um, the knee-jerk sense that you must be hopeful regardless of the evidence as to how the future will be, that is something I believe in too. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for uh, addressing that. It was just, it was kind of something maybe because I'm, I'm not a philosopher. Uh, art history is a very different field, though I like oh. to think at least we have aesthetics as common ground. We, we could sort of toy around with that edge of things a, a little bit. But yeah, this idea of, of perpetual struggle without hope, I'm going to I'm gonna have to think about it more. Mm -hmm. Maybe since I'm mentioning or I, I'm bringing up or outing myself as an art historian here, definitely an, an outsider in terms of uh, I'm not in your field and I'm not technically in gender studies either, though I, I work on masculinity. I wondered where you see your work intersecting with masculinity studies. Mm. Um, and maybe in particular, I was thinking a lot, I, I read Michael Kimmel's uh, Angry White Men, American mm. Masculinity at the End of an Era a couple of years ago, I think it came out in 2013. And I wondered, you know, he's kind of persona non grata right now in, right. in his own field. Um, but he does talk about aggrieved entitlement, I think, is the way that he put mm -hmm. it. And I wondered both, you don't have to speak directly to his work, but just where do you see your work in terms of the overlap with efforts in various fields in terms of masculinity studies? Are we unified or are we all kind of working in our own little corners, shining flashlights and hoping it'll illuminate all of us together? <laughs> That's a great question because I'm someone who really wants to draw on the work of sociologists as as well as people in in many other fields, um, historians, political scientists, um, art historians, for that matter. I really I think see myself as somewhat of a bower bird who's kind of plucking shiny things from different fields, and I never care if it if it's philosophy. Like sometimes philosophers have this sense of themselves as ourselves as having this prestige discipline and the question, is it philosophy is kind of synonymous with is it good or is it interesting? And, and I just think that's so false, so manifestly false. Um, so I see the kind of project of trying to illuminate masculinity and especially white masculinity as um, certainly illuminated in different ways by people in different fields, but as having an important unity. Mm -hmm. um, and I see it as very much connected with the feminist project of understanding misogyny. So in, in some ways for me, these are um, concepts of the natural flip side of each other, because the way I think of it is there are all of these toxic male entitlements that are both uh, felt 
and internalized by privileged male subjects oftentimes and are bestowed by third parties, including um, oftentimes by women, entitlements to sympathy, to care, to sex, to consent, to money, to political power, to knowledge. Um, and the way that gives rise to misogyny is that when designated um, givers of these goods, namely girls and women, don't supply privileged men with what they're deemed entitled to, then there, there is misogynistic reprisal mm -hmm. um, in the form of punishment and enforcement and coercion and attempts to control, as well as sheer violence. And all of these down girl moves, as I think of them, um, trying to get women into line in order to bestow those goods on designated privileged boys and men. Um, so yeah, does that make sense, the way of seeing it as in order to study these masculine entitlements, we need to study misogynistic punishment of girls and women, as well as analogous treatment of non-binary folks, um, analogous and worse, oftentimes, um, and that the whole really needs to be studied, uh, yeah, holistically, mm -hmm. even though, of course, different people can be honed in on different parts of the, the elephant, but it is a one elephant. Yeah, absolutely. I think it not only makes sense, but it makes sense what you were saying about kind of needing to, to study this particular subject, to really dabble across so many different fields, to put together mm -hmm. something that's holistic. I've found absolutely the same is true. I, I'm a more voracious reader when I'm thinking about misogyny in terms of reading, sociology, anthropology, philosophy, psychology. I mean, you just, you kind of have to put together I don't know, with a lot more ingredients, the meal that you're making to to attack this intellectually and produce, you know, what whatever your your kind of angle on it is, whether it's about entitlement or or about visual culture as my work is, mm -hmm. that I think absolutely makes a ton of sense. Maybe we can dig in now, since we're starting to talk about kind of some of the specifics of entitlement that you get into in this book. I was very struck in the chapter, I think it's chapter eight, um, called Unassuming on the Entitlement to Knowledge, which mm -hmm. I, I have to say from the table of contents, I was like, oh, I'm looking forward to this one because as women working in academia, you know, this entitlement to knowledge and this chapter has a good amount on mansplaining. And I mean, it, it crops up occasionally, but this one in particular, you talk in this one and in a couple of others about this idea of testimonial injustice, mm. which I think intersects with what you were just saying, and about epistemic entitlement. Uh, these are maybe some of the most kind of heady uh, terms that, that you unpack, and you do unpack them beautifully in, in the book. I didn't feel like anything was lost on me by the end of this, like, oh, I didn't quite understand what she meant by testimonial injustice. But can you explain these two concepts a little bit to our listeners? And then I want to ask you a follow-up question about testimonial injustice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, um, so testimonial injustice is a notion due to the philosopher Miranda Fricker, and it basically refers to um, moments where if someone is not granted the credibility they deserve due to their membership in some minority or outgroup. So an example would be as a woman not being taken as seriously as you deserve um, when you testify to the fact that um, in uh, the talented Mr. Ripley, uh, Ricker's original example of this, Marge Sherwood is testifying to the fact that she suspects her um, 
fiance, Dickie Greenleaf, has been done a mischief by the talented Mr. Ripley, by Tom Ripley. And she has good evidence of this. Her uh, belief is warranted. She perhaps even has knowledge of this. But her um, father-in-law-to-be, uh, uh, Greenleaf Sr., says, Marge, there's feminine intuition and then there's facts. By <laughs> 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 dismissing her as having the mere feminine intuition that something has gone wrong here when, in fact, Dickie has been murdered. Um, so this is a classic example of testimonial injustice where someone is taken less seriously than they deserve or taken to be less credible than they deserve to be taken because, in this case, she's a woman. Um, now, this is linked, in my view, to a, a phenomenon that I've um, labeled epistemic entitlement, where um, privileged people, and I focus especially on privileged white men, um, they feel entitled to be the ones who issue explanations, who give information, and who represent themselves as the authority on a particular subject. Mm -hmm. um, so often this will result in mansplaining. So understood in this way, epistemic entitlement is something that will often occur um, independently of prior to testimonial injustice and actually goes some way towards explaining it. Mm -hmm. but his sense of entitlement to be the speaker and to be the authority will lead to him suppressing the voices of more vulnerable others. Yeah. I was struck by sort of after you explained similar to the way you just did this idea of epistemic entitlement, you talk about a form of it known as testimonial smothering. And this is where a speaker kind of self silences mm. because they anticipate, as you say, that what they have to contribute is either not going to receive the proper uptake or it might actually unplace the speaker or place the speaker in a kind of unsafe, maybe even risky situation to to come forward and say what they want to say or what they know to be true. This made me wonder, maybe this is the most curveball or most intense question I promise that I'll ask you, but do you think testimonial smothering of this kind maybe happens for those of us scholars who work on misogyny and entitlement? Yes. I love this question. So oh, yes, testimonial smothering is a notion due to the philosopher Christy Dodson, and it is this powerful idea of a kind of coerced self-silencing, just as you described, where someone self-silences due to their anticipation that their words will not receive the proper uptake. Mm -hmm. So the way to picture it is the words are kind of on the tip of their tongue. They want to testify, but they jam them back in their mouth. They kind of eat their own words because they don't feel that they will be understood or taken aright mm -hmm. and that there'll be something risky or even downright dangerous about this testimony. And this is actually the very first notion that I introduce in my book, Down Girl, in the introduction. Um, and I wrote that introduction precisely because I had felt through the entire of writing that book in danger of self-silencing. Mm. Um, so the book opens with the example of strangulation, the literal act that is this misogynistic act of coercive control, um, a very common form of domestic violence that is almost invariably perpetrated by men and is perpetrated 
disproportionately against women, although children are also quite vulnerable to it. Mm -hmm. um, and I explore the connection between the literal act of strangulation and testimonial smothering as both ways in which women are controlled and made to eat their words mm -hmm. rather than saying their piece. So the, the intro is called Eating Her Words yeah. because I have felt throughout the writing of it that I would do that, that mm -hmm. I, my anticipation of the book getting horrible backlash would make me just stop and be yeah. silent. It's such a... And I'm sure that's true for others. I mean, I, yeah. I can only speak to my own experience directly, but I don't think I'm that unique. I think there is something no. risky, dangerous um, in writing yeah. about these subjects. Yeah, and I think the fact that you sort of put it out there in the way that you do and then reiterate it again in a different way or in a slightly different context because entitlement is the lens that you're, that you're mm -hmm. focused on in this book, I, I almost think it, it's such important stuff for us to read, male or female, this idea that what we work on might get us in trouble oh, I feel like I have something important to say, but oh, will I not get tenure if I say it in, in a book you know, on this magnitude or, or say it as thoroughly, as intensely, cover it as intensely as it needs to be covered? I, I hope you know, students, graduate students listening and, and just everyday people think, think about this, you know, how do you counteract this kind of nasty self-silencing psychology that is so internalized by so many of us in various positions in which we, we don't feel entitled or we're not privileged in the way that, that some of the men you describe in the book so obviously are. You keep going in this chapter and talk about gaslighting, which I think is a common enough term that most people know mm -hmm. what it is and or maybe have seen the old movie where where it's called gaslighting, where where you see this actually play out between uh, a couple. But you talk about it, as I think you should, having moral as well as epistemic dimensions and this idea of questioning authority and challenging claims to knowledge or, or disagreeing on certain matters. I just wondered again here, similar to, to my question about testimonial smothering happening in the disciplines that we mm. practice in our work as scholars, are we being sort of gaslighted maybe by historiography or the power of the scholars who came before us? Are we gaslighted into believing that what we don't see in terms of misogyny, sexism, entitlement, you know, like, no, no, don't, don't look over there. The, in my case, the, the artists that you're talking about weren't misogynists, you know, like it's so often reiterated especially about artists that, you know, oh, the personal, it doesn't intersect with the artwork that they're making. And I, I, I've begun to think about this notion of both testimonial smothering and gaslighting in terms of how that happens to us in the work we do. Do you think that happens in philosophy or have, have you given thought to that? Yes, I think it definitely happens, unfortunately. Oh. And I think you find that, um, that dynamic so powerfully. I think one of the ways that I see my whole work and hope that my work um, works is by <laughs> is by counteracting gaslighting as sort of a bulwark against the gaslighting that is a huge part of misogyny and is kind of um, central to the way misogyny works is by making people feel 
either a crazy or b guilty ashamed um, for coming forward and testifying to experiences or witnessing of misogynistic actions practices and artifacts um so yeah i think that um what often happens in philosophy is people are made to feel irrational for not buying some accepted narrative or not buying some common intuition or even set up framework um thought experiment um but i also think yeah as you mentioned there's this moral dimension to it too where people can be made to feel say um uh insufficiently sympathetic um guilty in as much as they're not extending full compassion for having the quote-unquote wrong um, view of a situation. So, you know, this is something that I think we really need to combat. And I have this hope that philosophy at its best could actually be something that works against gaslighting. Because in a way, the spirit of gaslighting is to squash disagreement mm -hmm. and to squash divergences in perspectives that are threatening to the gaslighter. Um, this is something that the philosopher Kate Abramson has brilliantly illuminated. Um, and one thing about philosophy as a humanities discipline is that it thrives on disagreement. And I think that it's possibly um, one of, if not the most, disagreement-friendly practice. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of double-edged sword. It can both work to squash other perspectives, to say um, in a very direct way, no, that's an illegitimate perspective, or my hope is, at its best, it can be used to open up terrain and say, isn't that an interesting divergence in how to see things? Let's explore that more. Let's view this as a useful divergence, a fruitful disagreement, and not something that has to reach premature convergence. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that idea of sort of using what philosophy is innately to 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 almost kind of weaponizing what philosophy is innately in mm -hmm. order to counteract the, this this feeling that what you're going to want to say is irrational and maybe going back to what you said originally in terms of the intersection between your interest in computer science and your initial interest in logic because you want so much for for it to be able to prove it's true and not have people be able to take it apart I guess you can use some of that same very rigorous logic to counteract the gaslighters because mm -hmm. th there is reality. There is truth to some extent. There are facts. Yeah. I mean, I'm a historian. There have to be facts or I don't, I'm out of a job, <laughs> but you can weaponize, you can use that stuff to undermine what I see so strongly in our culture today, which is, well, I see it this way and you see it that way. And you know, what are we going to do is mm -hmm. how do we ever meet in the middle? Yeah, that's that's good. Yeah, that's that's just how I see it. I think I want. I mean, I I came to philosophy for a bunch of reasons. Some of them good, some of them not so good. But I stay because I think these are powerful tools that can be used to arm marginalized people. And as yeah. much as we can really genuinely diversify the discipline, which is still an open question given the conservatism and racism and misogyny that we see endemic in yeah. philosophy, but if we can do what we ought to do and diversify the discipline, these are powerful tools that can be used to really equip people to mm -hmm. powerfully resist attempts to quash legitimate 
perspectives that ought to be heard, that ought to be entertained, that ought to be aired. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you mentioned diversity too. It actually takes me back to what I was planning. Uh, these, my plan for these always just goes right <laughs> out the window because I, 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 I like to respond to, you know, what you're actually saying. And I have my little notes about what I, what I want to ask you about, but my plan to ask you sort of initially was about something that happens in chapter one and then continues to happen over the course of the book. Um, but right from the very beginning, you say, here's another quote, quote, as a cisgender, heterosexual, white woman myself, I've benefited immeasurably from the insights of, and, and then you talk about scholars um, who are, are thinking about or are trying to understand the specific forms of misogyny faced by trans women, black women in the U.S., and so on and so forth. I always, and maybe it's because I, I'm, I'm still untenured, I'm still a junior professor, you know, or maybe it's my field, I just always have this freak out about referring to myself in this way. And this is a trade book, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. so I think you're allowed to, to do this in a way that maybe, you know, if the book is with Oxford as your first one was, you, you might sort of hesitate. Though I'm pretty sure you do this in Down Girl too, right? But do you, did you have any qualms about situating yourself so firmly in terms of saying, you know, I'm cisgendered, I'm heterosexual, I'm a white woman. You know, these are uh, qualifiers that... I think are important to our perspectives, almost that we get this out of the way. Listen, this is who I am. This is the perspective I'm writing history or I'm writing philosophy from. But I wondered how that's received in your field, because in mine, it's it's really sort of like, oh, you don't don't do that. You know, like there's no reason to talk about yourself if what you're doing is empirical, if what you're doing is objective history. Allison, you shouldn't need to reveal your you know, that you're a heterosexual white woman. It should it should just be like your voice is any voice. But I don't know. Maybe it's a difference between philosophy and art history. Or maybe it's another one of these sort of brave things that you do as the scholar that you are. But I wondered if you just might talk about speaking from such a personal place in this book and in Down Girl. Is it difficult? Is How is it received? Stuff like that. It's so interesting that you bring that up because um, I think maybe philosophy has, so it's definitely not just me who does this. Okay. Um, Perhaps, um, I mean, certainly not a universal practice, but I do think it's common in feminist philosophy to do it. Mm. Um, and to kind of straightforwardly acknowledge your positionality before moving on, which I think is, for me, it's a good way to navigate between acknowledging, um, you know, I'm positioned as I am, and therefore I owe a lot to other people, other perspectives, other voices, and also I'm going to miss a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. So in the spirit of I'm not trying to be um, the last word on this topic, I'm trying to be a word on the topic, um, this is where you should look for gaps in my narrative and holes in my account and places where it needs to be at the very least more richly embroidered to mm -hmm. um, take into account the kind of full range of diverse women's experiences um, as well as those of non-binary folks. Um, but I think one thing that's happened in philosophy is that feminist philosophy of science has done us a huge service. Mm. So I'm thinking of people um, like Elizabeth Lloyd and Helen Longineau and Liz Anderson, among others, many others, um, who have um, really made the argument that while there is such a thing as 
objectivity and intersubjective, um, you know, community building within science to come up with um, truths that ought to be acknowledged, often our search for objectivity or uh, a richly robust intersubjective account, um, those attempts can flounder on our own biases. Mm -hmm. So very straightforward things like people um, had a passive account of um, the role of the egg in human reproduction mm-hmm. because they kind of viewed the sperm as like doing its thing and being an agent and super active and like a little man <laughs> on its way to the race to the egg. Um, <laughs> and, you know, feminist philosophers and science really helped take that apart and expose the myths that had been promulgated in the name of big S science um, because it was mostly male researchers who had very biased and fixed ideas of um the feminine and the masculine mm-hmm. and had missed all of these cool agentic things that eggs were apparently up to. I, I actually don't know exactly how that works. But, <laughs> um, but, you know, I think the example works well enough for my purposes that um, by acknowledging our positionality, we don't say, um, I think necessarily that we're not um, saying things that are generally true, but we're inviting readers to embroider, to elaborate and also to challenge in ways that are healthy and important. Yeah. I think I like this idea of exposing myths and, and, and like you said, so having to sort of name who you are so that others know where your biases or blind spots might be so they mm-hmm. can jump in and add to the work because I, I, I'm all about that in my own work. Like, hey, I'm never going to cover this as completely, as thoroughly from all dimensions as it should be, everybody else jump in. And I think your work does that, where it's, it has this flavor of like, this is what I have to say about this. Now, everybody jump in, build on this from your own perspective, use this as, as you will. In terms of exposing myths too, I, I thought to ask you this, maybe as the kind of last question about the book. Um, and it's something I've been thinking to ask scholars in these interviews lately. And it's just sort of, Maybe, like, what surprised you the most about exploring entitlement at this depth? Was mm. there something you just really weren't expecting to occur over the course of the research, over the, over the course of writing it, where you're still like, wow, I didn't know it was going to go in that direction? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It kind of comes back to some of my roots, but this is kind of dark, and I, I guess I should, you know, give a little content warning for sexual assault. Um, What surprised me was how much sexual assault is committed by boys, not men. Mm -hmm. So something we saw in the Me Too movement is a lot of the men who've been taken down by its popularization have been these men who adhere fairly well to a kind of dirty old man trope Mm -hmm. that is itself ageist, problematic, um, has a kind of capitalist logic to it of these men being sort of past it, past their commercial viability or near enough. Um, so, you know, you have people like well, Harvey Weinstein in his late 60s, um, Roger Ailes in his 70s, um, maybe even 80s, I can't recall. But you have these older men who are the faces of the men who are taken down. But in the U.S., at least, between a quarter and a third of all sexual assault is committed by juvenile offenders, overwhelmingly male. And that means we have a very serious problem in how boys are being taught about sexuality and what they're entitled to do um, and 
to take from girls and other boys. Um, mm -hmm. Because I should say that uh, I've an unusually high proportion of this sexual assault. So it's still disproportionately against girls, but it's also committed quite uh, often against boys as well, and I imagine also against non-binary kids. Yeah. yeah, very concretely, I was shocked by how little we faced as a culture that um, boys who are, in a way, too young to fully blame or hold responsible for what they're doing are nonetheless doing terrible, violent, and hugely damaging things. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I, I feel like we haven't fully come to grips with that as a culture because it's a very difficult problem. Firstly, there's just the practical question, how to educate people not to do this. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also the question of, well, how can we begin to think about these acts that, as Roxanne Gay, the brilliant feminist writer, put it, they're the acts of men done by boys who are too young to be men, but they know how to do the damage of men, yes. as she puts it. Mm -hmm. When she's writing movingly about her own, um, she was raped by a group of um, boys when she was in her uh, early adolescence. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that has kind of stuck with me, especially as I'm now a parent thinking about how we raise children. Mm. How are we going to tackle? It weighs yeah. on me very heavily, and yeah. I don't know the answer. How indeed. And, you know, I can only think that at least part of the answer is that books like yours have been written, that they're accessible in the way that they are, that they're written in such a way that we can all latch on and really understand what's at stake here, all of the different kinds of nuances and permutations that you cover You've you've just you've done not just a service to your field, but I think a real service to to all of us in terms of writing this and yeah. asking us to think about this. Oh, I've taken up so much of your time. I do want to ask quickly sure. what you're okay. working on now or next. What can we look forward to from Kate Mann as you as you continue this career and this trajectory? Are you switching gears? Are you staying <laughs> here? What's happening? Yeah. Thanks. I'm really interested in gaslighting so you know mm -hmm. kind of longer treatment of all of the um or at least some of the many um areas where gaslighting is a problem and trying to give a general definition of gaslighting much like the definition that i gave of misogyny that tries to understand it as a systemic phenomenon as something that isn't necessarily interpersonal i think it can also be political and collective and here i've been inspired by brilliant work by elena ruiz um a philosopher who's written about cultural gaslighting of uh, indigenous women and black women in particular by white settler colonialist culture. Um, so yeah, I'm thinking I'm thinking about gaslighting a lot these days. So <laughs> it sounds yeah. like such a great project. I mean, of, of all the things you could have said, I think I'm I'm particularly interested for that. And if it ends up becoming a book, I will hopefully get to interview you again and talk about that work. Well, as I would well. love that. This has been such a joy and such a rich conversation. I'm so grateful for your um, wonderful, wonderful questions and your engagement and your kindness. Oh, well, thank thank you. I mean, I, I just always have this list and hope that it appeals not only to the scholar that I'm talking to, but hopefully to our listeners. So um, get this book. I, I mean, I don't know what else today to say. I've enjoyed talking to you so much. Thank you for taking the time to discuss it with me and, and being so open about the work and, and what it takes to do this work. 
All right, everybody, you've been listening to New Books in Gender Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Allison Lee, and I've been talking to Kate Mann about her new book entitled How Male Privilege Hurts Women. Thanks so much for listening.